Welcome to episode 272 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed listening to Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating the podcast with five stars. And if you're so inclined, you can also leave a review. Your ratings help new people find this show. And if you know someone that you think will like Stageworthy, tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I know told me about them. And remember, you can subscribe. And remember, you can find and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you get podcasts. If you want to support Stageworthy, consider dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Your support helps me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theater. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 272 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is actor, director, and visual artist Sulu Khalema. Sulu directs 1111, a theater pass for a digital production available from February 10th to 13th. Tickets available now at Theater Pass Marai. One thing that I do want to do right off the top is to make sure that when I do your intro, that I'm saying your name correctly. And I will always do this with everybody. If you could just, for me, just say your full name for me so that I make sure I have it right. Sulu Halema. Thank you, Sulu. I just feel like it's an important thing to ask people so that you don't get it wrong. Because that's like, I gave an example to somebody yesterday and it's, so my last name is Rickaby. But for some reason, there are people who call me Rick. My first name is Phil. My last name is Rickaby. And sometimes, after a while, it does get annoying when people call you the wrong name. So I always want to make sure that I get the right name for people. Of course. I think that's important. you know. And especially with me, mm. I had to take back my name because mm. when I moved to Canada. But if you want to put that in a podcast part, that's fine. But when I moved to Canada, um, I had to go by the English name because people had a hard time with my African name. And so for years, I didn't use Tsulu. I mm. used uh, my then female name mm. um, and it was an English name. Uh, both names were uh, my grandmother's names. So mm. uh, I had to take that back when I graduated university in 2005. And I was like, listen, everybody from now on is going to use my name. Tired of this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and was that, was that much of a fight for you to get people to use, to use that name? It's still a fight. Well, it's not, it's not a, as much of a fight now. I think back then, when, uh, 2005, people weren't used to other sounds uh, in terms of languages. And so even mm. us uh, being a Black African with uh, multilingual languages inside of me, mm. um, I had to basically, uh, you know, I, I had to adhere, is that, adhere is the right word, but I had to like... Um, use sounds that everybody else understood here in Canada. That's mm. assimilation. You know, mm. I have to assimilate not just 
me coming into a new country and, you know, um, and learning the ways and learning English, but I had to assimilate in terms of like um, my name and those mm. sacrifices that a lot of immigrants have to go through, to be honest. Now, when, when you were first using that name, did a lot of people mispronounce it, like pronounce all of the letters like solo or something? Did they, was that, was that something that happened? Um, I, I got T solo. Mm. I got, I got solo. Um, it's a sound that's not familiar, but people have that sound even in North America. It's that mm-hmm. Nami sound, too, yeah. that, um, that TS sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. A lot of people had a hard time saying it. Oh, my gosh. Like, I was like, and my answer was, come on, folks. I had to learn a whole language. Yeah. I, I literally, and that was like, come on. That was like 20 years of my life having yeah. to learn this language. Um, so that I can speak and communicate with you. The only thing I ask is for you to just say my name. <laughs> yeah. how, what? How old were you when you when you came to Canada? I was uh, ten years old, and mm. I was just turning eleven. Mm. And we had to really—I I don't want to say escape, but it was a dire need for my family to leave Southern Africa. And mm. uh, my father is a minister. Um, he was a reverend, and back then, you know like politics and um, the church were really, really working together to during apartheid. So if you were a minister and you had a voice, uh, you were automatically implemented in a lot of things that were happening with riots, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So so my father was just really outspoken and he was one of the people that um, was a target. And so Mm -hmm. him and my mother just decided in order for our children not to be orphans, um, we need to leave. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we did it quietly. And I was ecstatic, you know, because I was just happy to come to the Americas to meet Michael Jackson. Um, <laughs> of course, of course. It was like Diana Ross, you know, because I'm a <laughs> kid. I was like, I'm so excited to like meet all the greats. Like, I cannot wait to go to Hollywood. You know, I was all the people that were on TV at that time that their reputation have been destroyed now, like the Bill Cosby's, you know, mm-hmm. all of those people that w- even as a black South African grew up watching mm-hmm. when we could. Um, I was so ecstatic at 10 years old and that, that was life for me, you know, like it, yeah. I was like, I was ecstatic. I was gonna be. I was gonna be an American. I was gonna sound American. I was gonna sound like the the Cosby kids. I'm the same age as Tootie. You know, not Tootie. What's the What's the other girl's name? Um, it wasn't Tootie. That's the Facts of Life. Oh, that. Oh my goodness. Oh, I know who you're talking about. I can't remember the name. Rudy. 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 Of course. Yes. Okay. Okay. I, I was like, yo, I'm I'm gonna be like Rudy. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, I'm going to sound like Rudy. I'm going to be Rudy. I get to hang out with Michael Jackson and all those people. I was ecstatic. And uh, at what point did you realize that um, you didn't get to meet them? Like how, how disappointing was that? I think it was the first snowfall in luck. Oh. <laughs> I was like, this is not the America I remember. Like, I, <laughs> who, who did this? Who? Mm. Um, it was, uh, we, we moved to Lakla Bish of all places. I don't know if you're familiar with that is, but no. it's like a small town Northeast or East. Uh, I don't know. It's somewhere in Alberta, Alberta. No. Lakla Bish is a very small town. And, uh, when we moved there, it was just like so backwards for, for us. Um, hmm. 
you know, we were the only black family in that town. Mm. So everybody knew that there was a black family that moved in. And, um, and I just remember like people were really, really kind, you know, mm. people were really, really kind, but they also thought, um, they saved us in a mm. sense, you know, um, mm. in terms of like, uh, they saved us from the jungle. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so it was one of those things where, um, you know, they would think that we had tigers as pets. It was just ignorance yeah. that you saw on TV because even back then, that's all that you saw of Africa. Yeah. And so yeah. when we moved here in 89, um, it was just like a shock for, I think, both uh, my family and the people that were witnessing us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't speak English at all. I, I struggled with English because I was already speaking Kosa as my first language. I was speaking Sizulu and Sotu and Sitswana, you know? And so when I moved to Laklabish, it was, um, it was a French immersion school. And so grade four, I started my French immersion and I was, I've never been so confused in my life. There were so many languages inside of me. So Um, you were, you were, trying to learn English. French in an immersion program while also trying to learn English? And, yes. And also sure. I was speaking all these languages at home. Yeah. And mm. so as a result of that, um, my teachers were like, well, we think that your child is slow. And so they were used, I, I use, I only use those words because that's what, they, how they describe me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So they would, they would describe me as slow and, and um, that uh, I can't learn and that uh, something is wrong mentally with me, um, that I have a severe learning disability. Hmm. My parents, uh, they were also adjusting. Mm-hmm. So they left, they basically were like, okay, so what do we do? Talking to the principals, I'm sure that's what they did. I haven't had a conversation with them about it. But, um, but I ended up having to go into a, a class uh, most of the time when I was attending school. Um, which was, it was a, hmm, how do I describe it? It was a class where you had a lot of uh, students that were, had learning disabilities, but those learning disabilities were really severe. Um, Mm. And for me, it was a language barrier thing. And so they didn't understand that. And so when they would give me exams, math exams, um, because I'm a visual person, I would get like 90%. And so they would Mm. stretch their heads like, wait, why is this person doing well in this class? But in the other classes, they don't understand. But they didn't understand it was a language thing. So my parents were like, well, this kid has to learn, um, uh, this kid, you have to learn English, you know? And so I started listening to people speak. Mm. And I started, when I watched, you know, TV or cartoons, I would memorize the way people sounded. Mm. And I learned how to speak before I learned how to read or write, because I knew that was the only way that I can, I can be understood and not mm-hmm. be made feel like I was less than or that I wasn't up to par to the quote unquote regular students, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it was just one of those things where um, after they realized that um, I didn't fit into that class, they took me out. And so I just started sort of teaching myself how to um, imitate people, mm-hmm. um, English-speaking people. And sometimes I would mess up on words because I would hear words pronounced a certain way. 
And then I would try and imitate it that way, but that's not how the word is actually either spelled or so. So I had a hard time in school because of of that, of my backwards learning of like, I mm. have, I learned how to speak before I can write and so forth. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. You know, as, you, as you're saying that, like I, I'm hearing some of my brother's experience. Um, my brother is... A, a black man who is adopted as a young child into a white family. Mm-hmm. And um, I sometimes I like at certain points he was um, deemed to learn in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, as I grow up, I start to doubt those diagnoses that he was given by the school that put him into um, um, some, you know, the special education classes mm-hmm. Because that's what you know, called. yeah, special yeah. education. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, and now he's like, I know how smart he is, mm-hmm. you know, and how you know he. I think they just didn't. They taught him wrong. Yep. They, they were teaching in a way because he speaks seven languages now, all self-taught and fluently, and it's like these are things like his. He's he's so smart and he picks these things up, but at the time they didn't understand him because we lived in a town where he was the only black student in the school and that's the thing Mm -hmm. that's the thing that you know even canada doesn't understand is that even back then i don't know what's happening now but Mm -hmm. um uh teachers don't know how to teach black kids no and and that's honestly something that we need to talk about in schools um, we need to talk about, even in theater schools, I was just complaining, somebody had a Twitter thing uh, talking about school and student loan. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think that I got my worth um, mm. in, in the two theater programs that I attended. I did not get my worth because I wasn't taught to be a strong black person. None mm. of the instructors knew how to prepare me as a black actor to come out here and fight for roles. Mm-hmm. I had to literally learn how to be a white actor knowing that I will never get those parts when I left school. Well, it's so interesting to think, because, you know, as you're saying that, um, I don't know what schools you went to, but I'm assuming that the bulk, if not all, of the faculty were white. I've never had a Black teacher. That is, I think, a very common experience in theater schools. I know that, that Tanisha Tate has talked about that a number of times, how how she's gone into a school and the there's you know one black student who lights up as soon as she walks into the room because she's the only black teacher that he's had or he or she's had in their in their school yep it's it's one of the things that i'm i it just breaks my heart you know because i had such a hard time in school i was always like Mm -hmm. um and it's not like i was the only black student in school both the uh um the programs that i went to there was, um, if people don't know, I'm a trans person, so I'll start speaking in my old life. So when I sure. was in, um, when I was in school, I identified as um, a woman, a girl, um, and so it was a black me as a black woman, um, and there was always one mixed um, uh, other woman in my class who mm. is black and uh, white, um, mm. and so. You know, it was just one of those things where even um, I know when I went to UBC um, to do my theater degree there, 
Um, UBC didn't know how to how to take care of us as black uh, students. Mm. And so my friend and I would always just talk about that. And even when they were casting for parts, you know, we weren't really considered for certain parts. Mm. Um, or if the critics came to, to, they would really, like, I remember I, I, I did it one show where um, it was a British show and, and um, I'm not very good with the British accent, to be honest. Um, I've gotten better over the years. But I remember that we worked so I worked so hard on it. Um, and the reviews really g- killed me because they're like, oh, uh, she sounds Shakespearean. And I didn't understand that. Of right. What's the difference? Right. Because that's not. Um, so it's not like I wasn't given the tools to succeed. I, I knew in every school that I went to, I knew that. I was just learning to try and continue to be like the other white kids. Mm. So I knew I could never, ever really get that opportunity outside of that. Nobody was asking for, you know, black actors at the time, you know, but my classmates would be taken out to do productions outside of, of school and things like that, you know? Mm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just it, it, to maneuver learning um, mm-hmm. as a black person and, and not having any kind of faculty support was very difficult. It, yes. it seems like I was robbed sometimes, you know? Well, in some ways, in some ways you were. And I think that that's one of those things when we talk about education in general, but theater education in particular, you know, um, it is not right that there's w- even, there is no, or even just one, black teacher or teacher of color in in a school like that is we are we are robbing our performers and theater creators of of the the ability and or the like the learning experience to become the to have role models in the school to have people who look like them and that is super important yeah and i swear if they had more people that look like us in those faculties um, the shows that they pick would be very different. Yes, um, yes. Because, you know, then we're not made to just do Shakespeare. We're not just made to just, like, conform. Um, you know, there's so many other authors that we could have been tackling, so many other things that we could have been, stories that we could have been telling, more mm-hmm. black stories, more queer stories, or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that just wasn't an option, you know? And yeah. so... The thing about learning in North America is that you like this is why when I was I just did a residency with a Spiderweb show, and um, and one of the things like um, now I got distracted because uh, I was thinking about the Spiderweb show um, and this residency and like how important it was for me to just finally have a voice, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but university is just one of those things and college. I mean, I went to Grant McEwen as well when it was a college, uh, not a university and did musical theater. And it was like one of the best learnings I've ever had, you know, like in terms of the material, but it just didn't suit me, you know? And, and um, I, I just wish that we had more options so that I yeah. can, <laughs> um, and that, you know, we could have like tackled, you know, um, black plays or even mm. monologues that I was doing. I wasn't choosing monologues that really suited me, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause we were doing things like Dylan Thomas um, under Milkwood, which I had a pretty good part in it, but it was just like the balance is just wasn't there. And, and also like in school, um, I mean, things have changed dramatically, but even in school, I would hear one of my classmates during voice class 
uh, made it a point to, you know, to inform me that Shakespeare wasn't made for us. And so with that, I just stopped being interested in wanting to learn Shakespeare. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, kind of you know, yeah. I mean, I remember, and, and this is sort of one of those other part problems with not having faculty that looks like you, it actually makes it harder for you to stand up for yourself. In when I remember when I was in theater school, so many of us were so terrified every day because, you know, the first semester was fine. Then we found out that people could get cut. And I, I think that some schools have dropped that, but like you could get cut from the program. And so then we spent every day worried that we were going to do the wrong thing. Am I doing the, something that's going to get me cut? You know, and this is not a way to be creative. It's not a, a conducive way to, to, to feeling like you have a place in the school when you're afraid all the time. When you feel like you can't rock the boat and sometimes you have to rock the boat. Wow. That is scary to, to be on edge like that. How can you Mm -hmm. create? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I want to change gears a little bit. It was sort of like, we'll lead back to the, the, the part we left off to. Um, But I'm curious because one of the things that's always fascinating for me is what brings people to the world of the theater and what makes them want to make this their life's work. So in, as it were, what was your theater origin story or what is your theater origin story? Oh man. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, um, mine is part of my bio, you know, it's, um, when I, I, I understood at a very young age that despite, um, the state the world is in the chaos, the world could be in, um, back then it was apartheid, that my people used music and songs to sort of either feel better or to get the message across. And so that was also part of creation. Um, we, you know, uh, I heard Muzabalazo, which are like uh, uh, freedom songs and, mm-hmm. um, and freedom chants um, that were happening on the streets during that time. And my father, as a minister, um, one of the things that I, you know, I used to love watching singers at church. Um, and my father, and I remember having a crush on the lead singer of uh, one of the choirs when I was a young, young kid. And I just watched her and watched her for a long time. I said, that's what I want to do. That's right there because um, people look at how people are watching her uh, and how, how the, the strength that she has. And so when we moved to Canada, and to Lat Labish, my family, um, I don't know how this came about, but we ended up having a family singing group called the Halimas in Lat Labish. Hmm. And we would enter these competitions or people would ask us to come and just sing. And I was like the, the youngest in the family, the cute one. And so, you know, I would sing out and people would be like, oh, you know, um, you know, she's so cute or whatnot. Um, and so it sort of started there. The attention that I got really gave me, you know, a little bit of a boost and um, attention because the youngest, I often, you know, I'm a loner. So I often was just left alone. Um, mm. And so I utilized creativity and songs from church to sort of like learn mm. and to sort of like, you know, stand out a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I left, sort of left that alone when my family decided to leave Lucklebish and move to Edmonton. And when I got to Edmonton, 
I became a jock. And so I really got into sports. I got into volleyball and basketball and all of that. Um, and then uh, one practice, I stayed a little bit late to do some workouts and the drama kids were rehearsing and I thought that was so weird, you know? And, um, and I ended up uh, staying and sort of like, you know, watching. And then we had to go and watch this other show uh, during, and I was just interested in drama. I, was, I didn't understand why. And so as I'm doing all these different sports and I'm all on these, you know, teams and I'm a captain, this and that, um, my parents said, you know, you're about 15 and you need to work. You know, you can't be doing all these other things. You can pick one of the things that you are, you know, you can work and then pick one thing that you want to do, you know, because you can't be on these, all these uh, sports teams. And mm. I said, okay. Um, I applied to, uh, what, what, oh, uh, what, Kmart. I applied to Kmart. Okay. I got in. Huh. And, um, uh, and then I thought about it. I said, I don't know if sports is for me, but I want to try this drama thing. And I remember I got cast as Cinderella in Into the Woods. Mm. And I was like, wow, this is so dope. <laughs> and I remember just like, I was conflicted. I didn't know why then, but I mean, that will soon come out. But I, 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 I love playing Cinderella and then the next year I got uh, to play um, uh, Anita in West Side Story. Mm. And I was like, I get to dance and sing. And people like people are like, oh, my God, you're going to be a star. You know how kids are. Mm. Like, yes. Oh yeah. Just attention. Yes. Like, yes. And so I just kept going, you know. Um, and then when it came to applying for school, my parents were like, oh, that was fun. You know, like now you got to apply for real things <laughs> and you got to, you know, um, there's nursing. There was a lot of options, you know, that I could have done in school, but I always hated school. To be honest, I'd never had a good experience. And so I was like, but I want to do something that I really enjoy doing. And I don't know. I, I think either Grant McEwen came to my uh, high school and, gave us pamphlets or somebody came to speak to us and I just didn't even blink. I just applied. Hmm. And I, and when I got the material, it was Shakespeare. And then it was anyone can whistle was a song that they picked for us to sing. And I remember I practiced all summer and, um, and audition and I got in the first time. And then when I got in, um, some students were like, or one student, actually, I shouldn't say some, but one student was like, you know, you got in because you're black, you know, cause I tried like four times and I was like, Oh God, um, I'm hoping I got in because I had, they saw something, you know? Yeah. So yeah. basically, um, I mean, that is a shortened version of it, but there's just so many influences that came about in terms of like, hmm. um, me wanting to be an actor. It was like the influences that I got from home. Um, hmm. and just, I just saw people storytelling at home. The way people tell jokes and stories at home is quite different. The way theater was back home was a little bit different as well. Like it was just so like, it's the way people dance at home is quite different. It's very showy, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and the way my dad preached was very showy as well. Um, and my, and side note, my dad wanted to be an actor and he wasn't. Oh, actor. well that, that, I mean, you know, in some ways, you know, cause my, my dad was actually a minister as well. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. 
my dad was uh, ordained an Anglican priest uh, when I was in my teenage years. So, um, but you could definitely see how, you know, if you couldn't be an actor, the pulpit is a stage on its own. It is a stage. Yeah. Oh, my dad wanted to be a singer. He really, he, his nickname is Washington. He thought he was like, <laughs> he really thought he was like, you know, he really wanted to do it. But his mother was a single mother back then. And he mm-hmm. wasn't allowed to do that because he was the eldest man, uh, boy too. Uh, in the family, in a mm-hmm. single parent home. So, um, yeah, like, you know, um, yeah, like I, I, I just, I, I, I think being around my family and just that kind of influence was just like so instrumental in the storytelling t- of, of things. And, mm-hmm. and also in I, one thing is that in college is I got diagnosed with dy- dyslexia. Um, mm-hmm. And that broke me, but I still plowed through it. I had a really hard time reading, um, which was like, why did I pick acting? Because that's all we did was read and read these really difficult texts and things. And I was just like, I, I just, this just doesn't work for me. But I still had the need to just want to act, you know, um, I just loved musical theater in particular. There was just something so magical about it. You know, when every time I went to go see a show, the lights, um, the, the, the costumes, the sets, everything mm. was just so magical, you know? And so I, it went back to home where I was just like, wow, people can pay attention to you when you're doing, when you're making them laugh or you're making them think. Mm-hmm. And um, and also it made me feel so comfortable because I can be somebody else on stage, and I can fall and people would laugh and I can act the ways and people would laugh. I used to love making people laugh. Mm. You know that was one of the ways. Like even now, it's I I went back to it because it's just one of the ways that it just sits naturally on me. You know, mm. um. So that's that's why I just kept pursuing it. it there was no way I would I would let this just go. And I had so many people t- tell me, like, pick something else, you know, like, maybe you should just have a backup. I never wanted to have a backup. No, and that is that is something that, that, that I remember people. I remember my years ago, just uh, maybe like two years out of theater school, I remember my, my grandmother, while she was still alive, tried to bribe me to go back to school. Right. You know, she was basically like, you know, if you go back to school and you study computers, I will pay for it. <laughs> you know, you know, just that whole thing. Like if you just go to get something to fall back on, wow. um, I will pay for it. You know, and that's, that's, I mean, as much as I hated it, I now know that's my family worrying about me. Yep. But it's also a little undermining. It is. Because that's something that people don't understand, like how hard, like how, how much it takes for theater artists to create what they see, for any mm-hmm. artist to create what yeah. you see or hear and enjoy, you know, it, it takes a lot and it's, it's everything. It's emotional, it's mental, it's physical labor. Yeah. I, I also think, you know, I mean, you and I have both done fringe festivals and things like that. And, 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 and those are, they take a lot out of you. Um, regardless of whether the show is doing really well or not, because you're not only performing a show, which is what you would do. Like if you had a a show somewhere, you would just worry about doing the show, but fringe, you're doing all this other stuff as well. And you're trying to promote the show and that takes stuff out of you. It's like everything 
exhaust you. And then you try to put as much as you can on the stage. Um, I remember performing my show in fringes and having a lot of energy for like an hour to an hour and a half after. <clears throat> and then that was it. Then I was done. Then it was like, okay, I got to sleep now. Yep. You know, cause the audience gave you enough some, but then after that, you just had to like, the the creation the performance of it all of it just does take it out of you yep it really does the performance take it out of you and then having to sort of be a managing oh, those festivals are hard you know yes. people don't understand it takes a lot of work to be an artist and also to show your art especially if you're creating it yourself and you know what yes. I yes mean? it's uh it takes um i've been writing a play for like six years and it's terrifying showing people pieces of it. Oh God. Um, my, my show, the commandment took me eight years to finish. Oh my gosh. And I remember the first time I performed it that whole day, I thought, this is it. This is the day that I just vomit for the whole day. I just felt like I was going to be so sick all day because I'd shown bits of it. I'd read it never actually looked at the person while I was reading it because it was just too stressful. But this was the first time doing the whole thing. Yeah. So you put all of that into it. And then you're also trying to go around and convince people to come and see the show. It's so intense. It's intense. It's intimidating. And it's really, really intense. Mm. <laughs> um. I want to talk about 1111, which you were directing at Theater Pass Mirai. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about that show? Um, the show was written by Samson Brown. Um, and he is um, uh, a, his mother is South African. Um, and his father um, is, I believe, from Trinidad. And uh, I mean, the story itself will, will inform you um, because it's basically a life story of his life parallel. Mm. Um, so it's a story of discovery. It's a dis story of somebody who um, discovered, who discovers their gender, um, mm. discovers um, their history, who discovers their ancestors. Um, and also, and he also discovers gifts that he had that have been part of him all of his life. Um, and now he is a, a practicing Sangoma. So it's it's a story of um, of uh, like what's the word I'm looking for? I'm looking for a word. Apologize. Hmm. Um, no, it's... It, it's a story of one that's um, discovery of yeah. finding, who, finding out who you are. Right. You know. Um, I'm I'm really really excited to be uh, directing it with uh, TPN with uh, alongside um, or directing it um, with Theater Pass Marai, um, mm -hmm. and it's a beautiful story that he's written, um, and it has beautiful music um, that we've just recorded today, and yeah, I'm I'm just really excited to be part of this uh, this journey. Now, there, the, of course, this this year, continuing from last year, there's the added complication of the fact that we, we can't bring an audience into a space to present this. And so this is going to be a digital production. It sure is, yeah. And how are you navigating the not, like, there's so much to learn about trying to do theater digitally. Um, 
how are you navigating all of that? How, like, what's that been like for you? Uh, I'm not going to lie. It's been nerve wracking, you know, because um, the situation with the world, um, with the COVID keeps changing. And so we're not really sure um, what's going to happen next week or what's going to happen a month from now. You know, it could get worse or it could get better. So Mm -hmm. in terms of like um, the show, we have to look at it as both a theater uh, production as if the audience is there. And also we have to look at it in in terms of lenses. And so, you know, we're trying to create um, uh, an intimate uh, piece that seems like you're still in the theater. You know, um, it's not, it's, we're not doing Zoom or anything like that. It's just going to, there's a lot going into it. You know, I don't want to give out all the secrets um, <laughs> of what's going to happen, but the navigation is just like, it's, it's um, looking at everything that we can do. You know, we have to obviously use cameras. So like how many cameras can we use? Mm. Um, you know, it's it's navigating because we're gonna be shooting it live, I believe, um, mm-hmm. every night. Yeah. And so there's a lot to navigate, and yeah. and also the internet it just it's not trustworthy. I mean, let's be honest, because mm-hmm. a lot of delays can happen and things like that. So, um, we start next week rehearsal, and I just it's it's one of those things where we just have to sort of like play it by ear, but plan everything, the possibilities of whatever could happen, you know? And so um, we're still creating a, a th- as if an audience is coming in, mm-hmm. except um, if it's not an audience, it's going to be cameras, if that makes yeah. sense. It makes total sense. It makes total sense. In my day job, I work in the the live events industry, so conferences and things like that, which have all gone online. Mm-hmm. and so everybody they come to us and they say like this is my first time doing a digital event and we're like it's the first time for everybody yeah here's what we've learned you know trying to trying to get that that in there but but you know trying you know you've got people who who've been doing events one way for like 10 20 years Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and suddenly this is entirely new and just trying to to make sure that they understand this is not like just doing things the way that you did, you could change things on the fly in a live event in a way that you can't digitally. There's too many moving pieces and everybody's in a different place. You have to, there's so many moving parts that you have to keep aware, be aware of. So it's like, we're trying to do that with theater. We're doing our show. And then there's all of these extra moving parts, you know, just to add that extra level of comp- complication. I know there's, there's, and <laughs> Oh, my heart is just pounding right now. Um, I'm sorry to do that to you. <laughs> no, no, no. It's okay. It's things that I think about often, you know. Um, mm. There's just so much happening. And that's why it's, it's, I find it really difficult to answer because I'm just like, there's, you always have to plan ahead, you know. Um, my mm-hmm. mentors tell me that. Plan ahead and plan for everything, you know. Um, because in this case, we don't know what's going to happen. So I got to yeah. make sure I cover all elements, um, but we're still creating it like we're in the space. Like, for example, we're a few of us are going to be in the space, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, even the way that I'm I'm working through it, it's just, it's it's regular theater for me still, you know? It's mm-hmm. about, um, the, um, I, I look at the, the, the um, lenses as part of an audience. So mm-hmm. we'll deal with 
all the the ups and downs when they come in terms of the digital world, um, which happens, you know, um, but we'll see when we get there. And um, we have a great team, you know, Theater Pesmerai is doing a great job just sort of uh, putting everything together and making sure we do have all the elements that we need to create a really awesome show. Mm, yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, I, I have to hand it to any of the theaters that are, are trying to do a season this year even though it has to be digital and all the, all the work that, that, that goes into that, you know, um, I think it's amazing that, that, that it's, that this stuff is happening at all. Phil, I think it's incredible. Like you don't even understand how much I love film and theater mm. and to put those things together, <laughs> it's just like life for me because I mm. do think that it, it's possible to, to um, create uh, these worlds and, and bring those worlds together and, and reach even more audiences that are not able to see, um, you know, shows and that are like, ha, ah, I missed it because I wasn't, you know, I was in the UK, you know, or I missed it or I was out of town visiting my family. Like, we have an opportunity that now when things possibly open up again, that we can actually create, um, I, I feel like we can create, like, more opportunities for people to see it. You know, um, technology is going up. So, like, what can we do with, like, augmented realities? What mm -hmm. can we do with bringing in ASL interpreters and ASL? Mm -hmm. What can we do to, to, to reach more audiences? Like, I think if 2020 taught us anything about, you know, theater and the possibility is that actually anything is actually possible, even through the hardest times that yeah. we face. So yes, applauding all those theaters that are able to to still create and bring art into homes, you know, because then when we go back to uh, maybe opening it up more and having audiences come in, it's going to give us an opportunity now, a great opportunity to say, okay, now how else can we reach maybe an audience um, in somewhere else to see the show? Maybe, we, you know what I'm saying? We can set I do. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I've been saying for ages that, that this is an opportunity for us to, to break down the, the silos in Canada, sure. for example. To be like, so I, I live in Toronto. I don't know what the theater scene, what's happening in the theater scene in Edmonton or in Vancouver or things yeah. like that. If we added a digital ticket, I could see it and i could connect with them and we could we could share our work in a way that we're not able to right now it needs to happen because these communities are close but they're not right mm -hmm. like we can literally like stream from anywhere and you're right and get to know other artists and how they work right now mm -hmm. people are having to relocate and all these other things when we can actually just be able to see their work you know and yeah. see how you know like I think it's such a great opportunity. I think I, one of the things that I want to take into um, um, 2021 is just that, is, is like, let's not look at it as a, in a negative way. Mm -hmm. you know? Because already the world is like trying to fall apart, right? Yeah. So let's, let's not look at it like, but how can we turn this around? Mm -hmm. I think we can still have an intimacy with of a theater setting and, and still have these, these uh, elements of digital to reach more audiences. There's yeah. no reason why um, ASL should not have an opportunity to see a show anytime they want to. Yeah, It's 2021. 
Yeah. There should honestly be no excuses because mm-hmm. you should just be able to have to to be able to have you know grants to maybe rent that kind of stuff or bring in a team for to to be able to reach that. That mm-hmm. is absolutely necessary. This is actually a wonderful opportunity. We're not losing anything. We're actually gaining a lot. Yeah, yeah. I I was talking like a few months ago. I was talking with um, uh, the the executive director of the 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 Fundy Fringe in St. John, New Brunswick, and they did their fringe because the in the Maritimes things were a little more open. Um, they did a combination of live streaming and in person. So they could only have a few people in the audience, but they also had practiced from almost from April into the summer, um, how to do like a three camera setup in their, in their theater space and, and switch back and forth. And so they had, you had your audience in the space and you could also get a digital ticket so you can watch at home. I want to see more people doing that. Brilliant. That's brilliant because you know what? Like, I don't know about you, Phil, but, Theater saves lives. Mm-hmm. Like honestly, theater has saved me more times than I can count. Yeah. You know, and and the times that I couldn't access it sucked. You know, yeah. and this time it sucks for everyone, and people are feeling it. Yes, you know, and so that's why theaters are doing this, and I applaud them too because we need we need this. This is good for our souls, you know, um, because look what's happening. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the other things that I think people forget is some people are like, well, you know, if we, if we give people a digital ticket, they won't bother coming. But I think that let's say, for example, if, if you had the opportunity to get a digital ticket to a Broadway show in New York mm-hmm. and see like that show on Broadway, mm-hmm. you would watch it. Hell yeah. But then if you went to New York, you would probably go see it again. Hells Yeah. Right, because and because we watch things over and over. We all have our comfort movies. We all have those things. If we liked it, we will see it again. And to have the opportunity to see it when I'm at home, but then to know that I am not getting the full effect, and I could go to I go to to, to New York, I can see that show. I think we are actually not cutting off our audience. I think that we are augmenting it and opening up and bringing more people into the theater. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah. It's perfect. And also it gives us opportunities for those, um, the um, emerging writers or um, n- new shows to be seen elsewhere so they can travel. Yeah. Right. It, I mean, like, yeah, we have to apply for grants and everything and still go through, but at least people have seen your work. Yeah. Like, yeah, we have an opportunity. We have the internet people. We've had it for a while. Yes. <laughs> I think the the barrier is is first off perception because I know there's people who are really resistant right. to video theater, digital theater. We also have, you know, let's face it, you know, I think a lot of people do have a love hate relationship with the unions. True. And if you look at what happened in in the U.S., where Equity and SAG-AFTRA were at basically at war for months right. about digital video. And they had to come to a temporary agreement. You know, I would love to see us be able to get past that here. And if we can't, then maybe a bunch of indie theaters will just do it. And because they're doing it, the bigger theaters will have to follow. Right. But I think 
that it's that hurdle of digital theater is not theater. Well, it could be. Yeah, it could be. I feel like it is. I, I feel like it's part of, of, of theater. I think it, yeah. right now we have no choice. Are you telling me that yeah. anything that people are doing is not theater? I, I there, believe that. There are some people who are saying that, and I disagree with them entirely. I, I do disagree with that. Just yeah. It's like people are trying to – it's not a film. It's it, we're trying to still create um, – I've just seen some beautiful work um, mm. recently, and I'm just like in awe of like how mm. intimate that felt. And I was in my own home in my pajamas. Mm-hmm. I was just like, this still felt like I was there. It's not quite the same, obviously, but it's still nice to be able to witness it. Yeah. But we know, I mean, okay, back in the day, you know, I remember when, say, for example, Les Miserables was the thing. Right. Everybody was going to see it. And um, there was also the, the Les Miserables tour or the, 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 the concert tour. And you could get the DVD of that. And people would watch that DVD, but if they got the chance, to see that show live, they would. So it doesn't replace. Never. It whets the appetite because we we get the sense watching it on video that we're not quite getting it all. And that draws us in, I think. Right. Right now it's just saving us. And Yes, it's saving us. And when we open back up, it could, you know, augment and 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 spread our theater and, and help us make connections. Exactly. And also we can reach the people who can't physically come to the theater because perhaps in some cases coming to the theater is ableist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are people who can't and we could reach them and they can come to the theater and still feel welcome, which they should. Absolutely. hundred percent. hundred percent. Now, just as we start to wrap up, one of the, the questions that I ask everybody who's been coming on since March, since the pandemic started, and it has to do with, with joy. Because we can all use a little joy in this these strange and stressful times. So my question to you now is, what has been giving you joy lately? Oh, what has gave me joy and what has saved me throughout this whole entire pandemic is art. Oh my mm. gosh. I started, I picked up a brush and I started painting my walls. Hmm. And I just started, you know, I started um, painting walls because I was doing research and I was doing research, you know, because I'm directing. Right. And so painting my walls was so therapeutic. Um, and I, it, I do different designs, you know, that, you know, are sort of derived from the Indebele tribe from Southern Africa. And I, you know, I took my own spin, which is nothing new, but, you know, it's my own art and it just brings me life to look at them. And then I just, mm. I just dove into wanting to learn, you know, mm. wanting to learn more about theater. You know, I've been doing theater since 1998 and, um, and there's still so much more to learn. And so I just decided, what else can I learn um, about this craft that I just love so much? How can I become better, a better actor, a better um, a, a better director. How do I become um, somebody that um, can be an asset into this uh, community? You know, that's what I want, and that's what I, that's what gave me joy is just mm. wanting to learn more and find out more. And mm. the more I dove in, the more I wanted to learn more. 
And the more I, 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 um, I wanted to do more. And so even working on the play that I said I was writing, I'm, it's, you know, it's, it's like I go back to it and I write. And then some nights I, I make videos. TikTok is another thing that's giving me joy right now. I don't know about mm. YouTube. I don't know if you watch TikTok or you're on TikTok. But that's giving me I, joy. Yeah. Yeah. I am on TikTok. I have a love-hate relationship with TikTok. Um, I, 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 I can fall down a TikTok hole and I don't know myself what to do with it yet. Yeah. But um, – I appreciate the people who are really creative on it. Right. And I'm not a big fan of the people who are just doing the latest trend that everybody else is doing. Right. Right. So with me, I'm like feeling really like all of those elements, honestly, like all, all these things that I can just disappear to when the world mm. is like falling apart are ones mm. that are giving me joy right now to be, because I feel mm. like we all need that. And look at that. They all had to do with art, you know? Yeah. And so for me, even like dramaturge and like all, just learning what things are, you know, and not, and not learning about people. Um, I think just going back to the basics is what I was forced to do, you know, instead of just sitting in this like place of, oh my gosh, like I'm a trans person. You know, nobody's going to hire me. Like, you know, that lull that you fall into when everything else is falling apart. I'm like, I don't want to fall into that. So I'm like clinging onto art even more, you know, and uplifting myself that way. I think that's amazing. I love it. I love it. Um, thank you so much. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. In my pleasure. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> 